Well, good morning. Welcome to the third of three weekend services at Messiah. Uh, before, I'm, before I get started preaching, I have the joy of showing you some pictures. Those, these will be cycling behind me on the screens. We are receiving 48 new members to our congregation today. Isn't that awesome? If you want to welcome them, please let them know how much you appreciate them. There, some will not have pictures because uh, we had a storm the other day that caused our computer system to crash and, and our power was off for many hours and we lost some pictures in that, but you'll see the names behind me where we don't have a picture. And while, while I'm up talking for just a few moments, if any of you have ever thought about what it would be to become part of our fellowship here at Messiah or what it takes, um, here at Messiah, we, all we ask is this, that you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that there was a time when you accept him in your heart, and that you follow the Lord in believer's baptism. And baptism, it does not save you, it's just a symbol. But if you've accepted Jesus and if you follow the Lord in believer's baptism, um, then we just invite you to come in if, if you have the desire in your heart to be part of us. Uh, in fact, many, in fact, the plurality of those here uniting with us did unite with Believer's Baptism. So we're excited about the fact that many of our new family members have accepted Jesus Christ and gotten to know him, and we're excited about the future. Also, too, while I'm up here talking, you know Judgment House starts this week. This is just a very important time in the life of this church. Uh, God does something very special here at Messiah during Judgment House. And we're looking forward to what will happen this year. Isn't it, for those of you who volunteer, and I think there are probably, what, three or 400 people from our fellowship who volunteer for Judgment House. Every year, we're just waiting to see what God does this year. And then last year, over 1,000 people accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And uh, we're looking for God to bring another harvest this year. And uh, so if you haven't gotten your ticket already, uh, please do that and use every opportunity to share with somebody else what God is doing here. You know, um, if, if I had food and all my neighbors were starving and I had the opportunity to share, I'd have a hard time saying that I really follow Jesus Christ. And if I experience what God does in this body every week, changing lives, and I don't share it with people around me, well, you know, I, that's not a good thing. So I want to encourage you to take every opportunity. If God is doing something in your life, Invite somebody else to be part of what God is doing. And you'll be thankful, and they'll be thankful. And 10 million years from now, you'll be running into each other in heaven saying, hey, remember when I came by your house and asked you to go to Judgment House with me? I mean, that great? I mean, that's going to be happening while all the ages unfold. So, I mean, take every opportunity. Let's, let's use this time. Next week, I start a brand-new series called Glimpse, and it's about prophecy. It's about what's going to happen in the future. In fact, next Sunday morning, I'm going to talk about what happens the moment you die. The sermon's called The Bright Light. And uh, so I want to encourage you to be here for these series, for these sermons. But I don't know, do you see what I'm seeing? I mean, it's like our world is racing towards something, and all the wheels seem to be falling off. The experts don't seem to know. You know, we put our trust in politicians, and, and many times, you know, these are good people trying to do the best they can, but they can't sort it out. And we're racing towards something. Some, I mean, you know, more and more nations are getting nuclear power, rogue states. We don't know what they're going to do with them. There is something that lies ahead. God has given us a clear map as to what the future holds, and I want to talk to you about those things in the Glimpse series. So be aware that that's coming up. It starts next Saturday night for the Saturday evening service, both services next Sunday morning. Now this morning, we're in between series, aren't we? This is one of my chances just to talk with us about a particular area of our life that I feel like God wants to talk with us about. And, it, and I need this message today. This is my third time to deliver it this weekend, and every time I brought the message seems like God has shown me something new 
as I've spoken the message. So tonight, this morning rather, our, uh, our, our text is in Luke chapter 5 and the first verse of Luke. And we're going to read several verses together. Now, if you have a Bible like mine, there, there's a line there before the text starts. And the line says, the first disciples. This is when Jesus would call the very first people who would follow him. Our Lord was multitasking when he came to this earth. He wanted to provide redemption for us. That was the essential purpose that he came for, the primary purpose. But he also wanted to start a church because after he would go back to heaven, he wanted that church to continue his work. And you and I are doing that even today. You know, the beat goes on. When the book of Acts is the story of the church. And when you get to the end of the book of Acts, it's as though the writer of the book of Acts just stopped mid-sentence and didn't finish the book. And the reason for that is the history of the church is still being written. If you read in the book of Acts, you'll read about guys like Peter and Paul and John and James. But today it's people like, you know, Samantha and Alan and Jerry and Mark and Elaine. I mean, it's people like you and me. We're still writing the story of the church. Jesus came to redeem us and then to start this wonderful movement, this wonderful organism that we call the church. And he started with 12 guys. Now, what I love about the guys Jesus started with was that, you know, Jesus didn't go to the seminary and pick out the brightest young theologues. He went down to the docks and got some guys that nobody else wanted, some fishermen, blue-collar guys with their union cards. You know, he, he found a guy that, who, whose business was a little bit shady. He was a tax collector. He got a guy named Simon who was a zealot. He was, he was a rabble-rouser. He got ordinary guys, guys nobody else wanted, and it wasn't that he wanted them to bring all their issues into the church. It was just that he wanted to change them and show the world what he could do with ordinary people. And this is a story about that. This is the story of the first disciples that Jesus called. I want to read it to you, and I think we'll get some good stuff out of this before we leave today. One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push out into the water. So he, that's Jesus, sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, We worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. At this time, the nets were so full of fish that they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners into the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. For he was awestruck by the number of fish that they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. Jesus replied to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything, and they followed Jesus. Jesus wanted these men to face a question. Because before they could follow him, they had to deal with this question. And all the time they were following him, they would deal with this question. He wants you and me to face this question. Because before you can follow Jesus, you have to face this question. And you'll have to face it every day that you follow Jesus. One simple question. It's like a one-question test. If you pass this question, you can pass the test of following Jesus. If you and I fail this question, we'll fail the test. Here it is, just one question. 
Can you trust God in every area of your life? Can I trust God in every area of my life? Jesus didn't say, fellas, if you can come up with so much money, you can buy into this thing. He didn't say, guys, if you'll perform some feat of strength, then I'll accept you. He said one thing, can you trust God in every area of your life? That is bigger than anything else. Why is it so big? Because if I trust God, I will obey God. And if I obey God, I'll be blessed. In any area of my life, if I believe God, I will obey God. And if I obey God, then God will bless me. If there's any area of my life that I can't trust God, I won't obey Him. And if I'm not obedient, I won't be blessed in that particular area of my life. Now, I know right now somebody's saying, okay, Mark, I, you, I'm, you've lost me already. I've checked out on you because I know you, your religions are just a bunch of rules, and you've, you've just already said the magic word. You said that I've got to obey. Well, if I've given you that impression, let me back up and start again because here's what I want you to think about. When I talk about obedience here, I'm talking about it in the sense that every parent in this room understands. You know, we, we tell our kids to do things that are for their good. We don't get anything out of it other than the fact that we want to see them be successful and healthy. You know, when your little, when your little ones are toddling around, you know, in their little stroller or walk or whatever, and they get too close to a fireplace, we pull them back and say, don't put your hand in the fire, that will burn you. Or we say to them, wash your hands after you use the restroom. Because we don't want them, to, we want them to catch disease. We ask them to be careful in traffic so they don't get run over. See, what happens at that moment, when that kid makes that decision whether or not he's going to obey the parent, it comes down to, do I trust my parent? Do I trust their truthfulness? Do I trust their concern for me? And it's the same thing in your and my life. If we trust God, we will obey God. And if we obey God, God will bless us. Now, there are two areas that all of us have to deal with this story talks about. The first one is, can you trust God in the area of your competence? Every one of us have areas of competence. There are things that we're good at. There's stuff I'm good at, there's stuff I'm not good at. And it's a challenge sometimes to trust God in the areas where I'm good at something. Because after all, I just crank it out. I just do it. You know, when Jesus came to Peter and said, hey, you know what, we're going to go fishing, Peter could have said, Lord, now listen, now we, we're really impressed with you. You're a great guy. You're a great Bible teacher. And if you want to borrow my boat to teach from, I want you to know you can borrow my boat anytime. But now, Lord, I know fishing. If there's one thing I know, I know fishing. Now, Peter had been fishing all night and didn't catch anything, but he understood fishing. He said, I know this boat. I know these nets. I know this lake. I've been doing this ever since I was a little boy. He could have said that. And my guess is that most of us struggle with obeying God, trusting God in the areas of our competence. For instance, in my particular situation, I've been preaching since I was a teenager. I've preached at this church for 22 years, hundreds, hundreds of sermons, over a couple thousand probably. And I could say, I know preaching. I'm at the stage of my life where seminaries and, and colleges bring me in to lecture all the young theologues about communication and preaching. Tomorrow night in Florida, I bring the keynote address to a group of pastors. It would be easy for me if, if I was getting ready for this message to just say, hey, I know preaching, but the truth of the matter is I had to go before God and say, God, I don't know anything about preaching. See, that's the challenge.
Can you go before God in the area of your strength? I mean, you may be, and, and here's the challenge. Forgive me for breaking sense. The challenge is always this. You will look around you, and you will know more than anybody around you at, uh, at, at, about whatever it is. I mean, you may know more about surgery than any other surgeons around you. You may know about, pra- about practicing law than any other lawyers in your firm. You may know more about running a business than anybody else who's starting up a business. You may know more about, you know, whatever it is that you're involved with in life than anybody else knows around you. And, and that's, where in, that's where we get lured in, into failure is because people count on us, and they look to us. But remember this, no matter how good you get at what you do, you will still not be God. You will still not know everything. And if we're not careful, we can fail in the area of our competence. That leads me to the second thing, because not only do we have, are we challenged to trust God in the area of our confidence, we're also challenged to trust God in the area of our incompetence. Peter would say this in Luke chapter 5, verse 5. We worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. Now, when he said we worked hard, that was his confidence. But his incompetence was we worked hard and didn't catch anything. Just as sometimes we're reluctant to trust God in areas of our competence, we can be equally reluctant to trust God in our areas of incompetence. Because after all, if we have to go before God and admit our incompetence, we have to admit that we have failed. For instance, I talked about Adam and Eve a few moments ago in communion. When Adam and Eve sinned, the smartest thing for them to have done at that point was to run to God and say, oh, Lord, I, we messed up. Look at what we did. We're sorry. What do we do now? But that wasn't their response. The response was to run from God. And many times when we fail, we get an attitude and we try to run away from God. My question for us today is the very question that Jesus posed. These guys were fishermen. They knew fishing. And yet Jesus was challenging them to go back out. They had been fishing all night at a time when you were supposed to fish. It was now daytime. You weren't supposed to go out now. And Jesus was challenging them in the area of their expertise. And he was also challenging them in the area of their failure because in their expertise, they hadn't caught any fish. So that's my question for all of us today. Because, see, our, our competence and our incompetency will always bracket our lives. If you can trust God in the areas of your competency and the areas of your incompetency, you can trust God in every area of your life because everything else will be somewhere in between. And so that's the question I have for you. Can you trust God in every area of your life? Because if there's an area of your life where you don't trust God, you can't be blessed in that area. If you want to be blessed in an area, you must trust God in that area. You can be faithful in nine out of ten areas. God still won't bless you in that tenth area until you trust him. So, with that in mind, um, I want to, in a moment, give you five lessons. But before I do, let me give you a verse that I gave to everybody in Power Lines Wednesday night. And when I was teaching this, it was like the Holy Spirit just came to me and said, Mark, you need this verse. And I've been meditating on it ever since Power Lines on Wednesday. It's from Proverbs chapter 16, verse 3. It's in the Amplified Version. The Bible says, roll your works upon the Lord. The Hebrew word there is like, carrying, like wearing a backpack. And, and it's the idea of letting it go and putting it on the Lord. And that's what God is inviting you to do this morning. I could be talking to somebody here today and you say, Mark, I just barely made it to church today. I am so stressed with all kinds of things. Let me ask you a question. Do you think God wants you to carry that? A lot of us are stressed because we're carrying stuff God doesn't want us to carry. We're worried about stuff that's in God's domain. And God's saying, just roll that off. Let him carry. Let me read the whole verse. Roll your works upon the Lord. Commit and trust them wholly to him. He will cause your thoughts to become agreeable to his will. That's the line that has grasped me. 
God is saying, Mark, if you will let all your problems go and trust me with them, God is saying, I will help your thinking to get in line with God's will. And then look at this. And so shall your plans be established and succeed. That's what I want. All I ask of life is success. And God is saying, Mark, if you'll roll all your burdens off, let me carry them. I'll help your thinking get straight. I'll pull your thinking in sync with my will. And then your plans will hum and you'll be successful in life. That's what God was saying to the disciples. He was saying, fellas, let me handle this. Let me show you where to fish. Let me tell you when to go. Just, just take my word on this. Go with me. And God was saying, I'll help you get synced up with me and then you'll have success. That's the message. But let me give you five lessons and we'll be through today. Somebody will say, well, Mark, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and nothing seems to work. Here's lesson number one. Try again, but this time with God. Listen, you can have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and still try to live life on your own. And if you do and you don't trust the Lord, even though God loves you and you're his child, you'll have failure after failure after failure. Sometimes it's good to just take stock of where you are and say, you know what, this time I'm going to trust God. The disciples had gone fishing all night, but they had failed. And Jesus was saying, try again, but this time, do it my way. Now, that was a challenge for them because, as I said, he was asking them to do things that were contradictory to what their own experience was. But it worked. That's what I want you to think about. You know, things are different when you try with God. The first time, they worked hard and caught nothing. The second time, they didn't work hard and caught everything. The first time they went at the right time, but it was the wrong time because they didn't catch any fish. The second time they went at the wrong time, but it was the right time because it was when Jesus told them to go, and they caught a whole boat, two boatloads of fish. That's how it is when you follow Jesus. Because, see, the difference is not when they went fishing. The difference was that they had Jesus. Listen to me. The difference was that they had Jesus on their boat. I'm talking to some husbands and wives here today. You've tried and you've tried and you've tried to have a good marriage. Problem is you've never invited Jesus into the boat. Now, you'll come and worship him at church, but Jesus doesn't go home with you. He wants to. I mean, he goes out to the parking lot with you with your Holy Spirit, and you just shut the door on him and say, hey, it's back to the real life now. We've been to church. We've done the church gig. But he wants to go home with you. Try again this time. Put Jesus in your marriage. I mean, really put him in. By that, I mean you let him tell you where to fish. By that, I mean you let him tell you what to say. You let him tell you what not to say. Try again, this time with Jesus. There are two verses that I've loved ever since I've been a child. I think about them all the time. One is Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, where Paul said, I can do everything. Listen, I can do everything. That's pretty powerful. Here is a man saying, I can do everything. Well, if Paul had put a period right there, we would think he was the most arrogant repugnant human being. I mean, for anybody to say, I can do everything. Many of us can remember Muhammad Ali. What a great boxer. He used to say, I am the greatest, remember? He used to say, I'm the greatest. He was on an airplane one day, just being Muhammad Ali, and he wouldn't buckle his seatbelt. Flight attendant came and asked him, said, you got to buckle your seatbelt. He wouldn't do it. She came back a little later, he still didn't have a buckle. She said, sir, you have got to buckle your seatbelt. Muhammad Ali shot back at her and said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. She said, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> now, if Paul had said, I'm Superman, we would have just written him off, but he didn't. He said, there's a whole sentence. I can do everything through Christ who gives me the strength. 
Jesus would say with the other verse in John 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. On, in one verse, the Bible says I can do everything. In the next verse, the Bible says I can do nothing. What is the difference? The difference is Jesus. I've learned that in what I do. Because, you know, I can pastor a church in my own strength if I want to. Here's the thing. Let me just take a moment to talk about this. If you want to do life on your own, God will let you. You know, if you just want to rush off and do things yourself, God will just say, okay, just bump your head enough, and when you get tired of bumping your head and struggling and stressing out, come back and I'll be right here. I can try to pastor this church in my strength, or I can pastor it in the strength that Christ gives me. And I'm telling you, I'd much rather pastor it in his strength. Now, the second thing I want to say to you today is, the second lesson is, it's all right to obey God in a climate of uncertainty. Many times, God will ask you to do something, and you won't know specifically how God is going to work it out. He just asks you to do it, and he promises to bless you. Let me give you an example. In a few moments, we'll receive our offering. The Bible says that 10% of my income belongs to God. It already belongs to him. I don't give the tithe. I bring the tithe. Okay? Now, God says this. And then, by the way, let me just say, that makes no sense at all to me. Because if I give God 10% of what I make, it sounds like I'm going to be operating on 90% of what I make, and 90% is less than 100%. But God has a blessing that goes with that. He says that if I will trust him, remember that, in the area you trust God, you'll obey God. In the area you obey God, you'll be blessed. God says if I will trust him in that area, he will open the floodgates of heaven and pour me out a blessing that I can't receive. Now, ever since I've been a teenager, I've been bringing the tithe, and God has kept his word. But the irony is God seems to keep his word differently every week. And he just asked me to obey and then to trust him even in a climate of uncertainty. Now, that's a pretty simple thing. Bringing God a tenth is not the toughest thing I do. That's actually one of the easiest things that I do. Forgiving my enemies is a tougher one. Loving my enemies is a tougher one. Humbling myself and putting others' interests ahead of my own, that is a lot tougher. Those are the ones that I struggle with. But here's what God says, Mark, when you forgive your enemies even though they still are your enemies, God says, let me take care of the rest of that. It is okay to obey God in a climate of uncertainty. The disciples didn't know what was going to happen. Jesus said, hey, let's just take the boat out. We're going to do some more fishing. They didn't know anything. They didn't know they were going to catch anything. It was just that Jesus said, do it. I love what Peter said. He's a lot like us. I mean, you know what he was thinking. He was thinking about Jesus. You may know theology. I know fishing. This is not a good time to fish. We just flamed out last night. But he didn't say that. He said, Lord, we, we, we fished all night. We didn't take anything. But if you say so, if you tell me to do it, I'll do it. And that's what the Christian life is all about. Because many times God is going to ask you to obey him in a climate of uncertainty. You don't know how it's going to resolve, but you just say, okay, God, if you're asking me to do it, I'll do it. Before I get to lesson number three, let, let me ask you a question. Why does God love humility so much? In the Bible, the Bible is always talking about how God loves humility. In Luke 18, verse 14, the Bible says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. In other words, if I, if I get self-important, God will humble me. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. James 4, 6 says it really scaringly. The James says, God opposes the proud. If I get full of myself, the Bible says God will oppose me. Now, God loves me. I'm his son. But I'll tell you, if I get full of myself, God will be out to get me. You know, some of, some of us have a paranoid complex. We think people are out to get us. But if we get proud, God will be out to get us. God opposes the proud, 
but favors the humble. That's all I need to hear right there. I want to be humble before the Lord. If the Lord blesses humble people, I want to be humble. But now, why is God so big on humility? Here's the reason. Humility is the experience of seeing the difference between what we can do and what God can do. See, when the disciples were full of themselves, they did fishing because that was the area of their competency, but they didn't catch anything. But now God is encouraging, Jesus is encouraging them to go out and try again this time with him because he wants to show them what he can do. The reason why I want to be humble is I want my life to be evidenced by stuff that only God can do. Because I know my limitations. God wants me to be humble. Well, somebody will say, Mark, that's an old word, and I'm really kind of struggling with what it means. Let me give you an update. The absence of humility is having an attitude. You know, many of us are parents. We know what it's like when our kids get an attitude. You just kind of walk around the house with an attitude. You know what? Anybody, anybody who gets an attitude, serious conversation is over, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to talk to somebody who's got an attitude. Somebody's just upset about something, just mad. Because they run everything that happens in their life through the prism of that attitude. They just get an attitude. And really, here's the only reason you and I will ever get an attitude is we are full of ourselves and we're full of the way we look at stuff. You get an attitude, if my get an attitude, you know, that's, that's what happens. And, and here's the deal. You know, and, and many of us, you know, as Christians, we can get an attitude and get God behind it. You know, I have a right to get an attitude. I mean, God wants me to have an attitude. No, God doesn't want you to have an attitude. And it's so big. Here's the deal. When you and I get an attitude, God turns the blessing switch off. You say, but I'm a Christian. Sorry, it's off. Well, I go to Bible study. God turns it off. Well, I read my Bible every day and I pray and I listen to Christian radio and I watch Christian television. God still turns it off. I'm telling you, you get an, ad, you get an attitude and you're closed for business. Because God resists the crowd. I learned a lesson about this. I was telling the story last night, and I was kind of doing the math in my mind. It was right before I came here, so it was probably about 22 years ago. I bought a pair of shoes from Penny's, and I bought the same pair over and over. When you're boring and obsessive compulsive like I am, you just buy the same thing over and over. And I'd had pretty good success with this particular kind of shoes, but Something was wrong with this one particular pair. And after I'd had them a couple of months, they just came unsewn. I mean, it was like the end of the shoe was just like this. And I was upset about that. Shouldn't have happened. And I was full of myself, and I went down to Penny's, the shoe department. I, the young man that was waiting on me came over to me, and I showed him what happened with the shoe, and I said, this shouldn't have happened. And I wanted him to give me a new pair of shoes. Just thought that was the right thing to do. He said, sir, you know, we have someone on, uh, who works here who repairs shoes, and We'll just repair these for you. I said, I don't want them repaired. I want a new pair of shoes. That's just not our policy. I said, well, let me talk to your manager. So he brought the shoe store, the shoe manager over. And I explained to the shoe manager what I thought justice would be. And this time, just a little bit stronger. Because when you have an attitude, you know, you've got to turn it up all the time, you know. I'm ramping this attitude up. And the store manager politely explains to me that that's not their policy. I think it should be their policy. I can't understand why it's not their policy. And beyond that, I just think it's wrong. So I said, I want to see the manager. And they brought them, can you believe your pastor did this? The store manager. Now, you have to understand, I'm not getting heated. I'm not getting loud. I'm a wordsmith. I know how to use words. But I told this manager in no uncertain terms, clearly articulated why I thought his policy was wrong. And I expected a new pair of shoes. Store manager said, sorry, that's not our policy. 
We'll be glad to repair them for you, but we're not going to give you another pair of shoes. Well, you know what I did? I bet some of you can guess. Because I see through the halos, you're just like me. I decided I would just take, I was just mad at this point. See, when you have an attitude, you just do stupid stuff. Unexplainably stupid stuff. And I do too. So I just decided I'd take my shoe with me and I would leave the store. I get out to the car and I realize, you know, I've got a shoe that I can't wear. But I've, I've expressed my opinion, bless God. So I take the shoe home, put it in the closet, and every day I have to walk past that closet. And that shoe, it's like it's just laughing at me. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what a dope. I mean, I lost my, you know, I lost... I lost my sense of well-being, and, and I lost my cool, and I said all these things about, I think I should have a new pair of shoes, and, 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 I, and the guy said he'd be glad to repair them for me, and I got to thinking, you know, sometimes the Holy Spirit would just kind of gently talk to you and say, now, Mark, if you'd let that man repair his shoe, you could wear it at least. might not be new, but you could wear it. So in a few days, about a week, if I remember right, I put the shoes back in the sack, went back to Penny's, disassembled my attitude, and I walked in, and the clerk who waited on me came, and I said, you know, my shoe's, my shoe's not right. And I said, would you mind repairing it for me? And he said, well, that shouldn't have happened. We're just going to get you another pair of shoes. <laughs> now I got more than a new pair of shoes out of that deal. I got a lesson. And that's how God is with you and me. You get an attitude, and I, I see this happen. I see this happen with Christians. As a pastor of a large church, I see this happen with Christians every once in a while. And you can see when somebody gets an attitude. They just carry it around and wear it. And I'm telling you, if that's you, you're closed for business. The blessings are over. But if you'll humble yourself before God, and go back and say, Lord, would you sow this attitude up? He may give you a whole new life. Number four, obedience makes God responsible. I, this is, I love this. When you obey God, he's responsible. You know what? If I'm obedient to God in my marriage, God's responsible for my marriage. So what if my wife never changes? What if my husband never changes? You obey God, God's responsible for that. You know, are you, you say, well, well man, Mark, I, I work with a lot of people, and, and a lot of them are not honest, and many of them don't follow Jesus, and it's just a crazy place, and, and sometimes I think people have to get my job. Let me tell you what, you obey God, and your job is God's business. You obey God in the area of finances, your finances are God's business. They're God's responsibility. At the moment Peter took that boat back out into the water, that fishing trip was Jesus' responsibility. And by the way, didn't he handle it okay? Just like he knew how to fill those disciples boast with fishes the Lord will know what to do with you in your life any area and I don't have time to preach this this morning hopefully you'll think about this and extrapolate it throughout the day any area where you obey God God takes accountability any area where I don't obey God I'm responsible if I don't obey God in my family I'm responsible for what happens if I don't obey God raising my kids I'm responsible for what comes down if I'm not obedient to God in the area of my finances, then I'm responsible to make it happen. But at the moment that I obey God, I can back away and say, God, it's your problem. I mean, I've been pastor of this church now for almost 22 years. 
And throughout the years, I've tried to follow God, and there have been a few times when God led me to do something that was controversial or difficult. But at the time I knew I was obeying God, I'd just back away and say, God, this is your problem, it's not my problem. Looks like you got problems. <laughs> it's not my problem. Whenever you obey God, it's God's problem. And he will handle it. He will handle it. Let me give you number five. I know I'm out of time this morning. This is the one that I'm really wrestling with, okay? I mean, when I got ready for this message, this is the one that I have thought about a lot. And I pray that God will help you with it too. God can never advance you past your last point of obedience. You know, the disciples, Peter could have said, Lord, um, you know, I don't think I want to take this boat out anymore, but now if you want me to do something else, I'll do that for you. God would have never asked him. You and I will never progress past the point of disobedience. For instance, we, we, we talked this last summer about intentional life, the Israelites going into Canaan. Now, Moses led the Israelites right up to the border, the Jordan River, and they, were right, they could have gone over into Canaan and possessed the land that God wanted them to have, but they choked and got cold feet, and they disobeyed God. What did God do? God sent them right back into the wilderness to wander, to wander around for nearly 40 years. What happened after all that wandering around? He brought them right back to the same river, to the same border, right back to the same thing. If you and I have an area of disobedience in our lives, we will never go a step further until we clear up that area of disobedience. Listen, guys, ladies, I've seen people in churches stay at the same point for 10, 20, 30 years. Saved, and they progress in the church. You know, they, they sort of will take on a role, they'll take on a responsibility, but spiritually you can tell they just don't take another step. Is that you today? Maybe you, Jesus loves you. You're God's child. You pray, but you know in your heart you reached a point, an impasse, and you never really grew past that point. Why not? I can tell you. I don't know specifically. Somewhere back down the road, there was a place where God wanted you to obey him, and you disobeyed God, or you didn't want to, you didn't want to obey God, and you stopped. And at that point, God stopped the clock. If you want God to bless you again, if you want to grow, you need to go back to that point of disobedience and obey God in that area. See, here's the deal. I can say, God, listen, I'll obey you in nine out of ten areas. I'll obey you in my family. I'll obey you in, you know, in pastoring this church. I'll obey you in my finances. But I don't want to forgive my enemies. Boy, it shuts off. Because until I clear up that area of disobedience, I'm not going any further. I could be talking to somebody here today, and there's something that just, you snag. You know, you've been fishing and you just get a snag, you know? I mean, you're snagged on something, and you can't let it go. If God is asking you to obey him in that area, just go ahead and obey him. You may not know how it's going to resolve, but trust God, because at the moment you obey God, God becomes accountable for, the, for what happens. And you can go on and live your life, and God will help you grow. But God will never take you past your point of your last obedience. Would you just bow your heads with me, please, in a moment of prayer? Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts in such a clear, pristine fashion that we would see if there are any areas of disobedience that have hindered our growth. 
Lord, if we've allowed attitudes to spring up toward our wives and husbands and kids and friends and enemies even, or worse yet, if we've developed an attitude toward you, Lord, would you help that to melt away in a spirit of sweet obedience? Help me. Help your people. Lord, we want to be obedient. We want to be blessed. In Jesus' name. Head still bowed. You know, we talked about Jesus saving us during the time of communion this morning. And a relationship with Jesus starts when you trust him with your soul. That is your inner, your inner person. And if you trust him with your soul, he will take responsibility for you throughout eternity. The Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I don't want to ever end the service without giving you a chance to call on the name of Jesus, to accept him as your Savior. If you've never done that, I'm going to give you a prayer to pray. These aren't magic words. You can use your own words if you want to. God's just looking for a yes. But if you'll pray with me, mean it from your heart, God will hear. Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned against you. Please forgive me of my sin. I trust you to be my Savior and my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, you'll have a few more moments before the service ends, another three or four moments. Sometime, would you detach the uh, detachable part from your worship folder. Put your name and address on there. Let me know. You can check the boxes. It said, I, I received Christ as my Savior. I want to send you some real easy to understand materials this week to help you take the first steps. And if you'll, if you'll let me have that address or name, I'll get it to you. You can also let me know if you have a prayer need or prayer request or want information about this ministry. You can drop those at the back of the worship center when the service is over at the bottom of the stairwell. And uh, we'll be thankful for that. May God bless you. The offering will come in just a few moments as well. If you want to, you can drop it in the offering plate. Lance?